Thank you for a very generous introduction, Gleaves. Um, and for any of you who are just here for Gleaves' talk, he's a very tough act to follow. So he, he talked a little bit actually at the beginning of his speech about contrast and leadership style. And you're about to see a bit of a contrast in speaking style. Um, but anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Two days before relinquishing the presidency in 1809, a reflective Thomas Jefferson sat down to write an old friend. Within a few days, he said, I retire to my family, my books, and my farm, and having gained the harbor myself, I shall look on my friends still buffeting the storm with anxiety indeed, but not with envy. Never did a prisoner released from his chains feel such relief as I shall on shaking off the shackles of power. The sage of Monticello is retiring to his personal pursuit of happiness outside the realm of public life. Little did he know that one month earlier, and 500 miles to the west, a boy was born <coughs> in the backwoods of Kentucky who would have a thing or two to say about shaking off shackles. That boy, Abraham Lincoln, would be forever linked with Jefferson's most famous words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson would never hear the name of Abraham Lincoln, and yet he would be forever married to him in our history books, atop Mount Rushmore, and in the nation's spirit. Lincoln would hark back to Jefferson's words again and again throughout his coming political career. Let us readopt the Declaration of Independence and the practices and policy which harmonize with it, Lincoln said in 1854. Let us revere the Declaration, he said two years later. All honor to Jefferson, Lincoln said in 1859 to the man who in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document, document an abstract truth applicable to all men and all times, and so to embalm it there that today and in all coming days it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very harbingers of reappearing tyranny and oppression. Get away with words, didn't he? On his way to take the presidential oath of office in 1861, President-elect Lincoln stopped in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where the Continental Congress had adopted the Declaration 85 years earlier. All political sentiments I entertain, he said there, have been drawn from the sentiments which originated and were given to the world from this hall. I have never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. It was that which gave promise that in due time, the weights should be lifted from the shoulders of men and that all should have an equal chance. Of course, as we shall see, Lincoln returned to the Declaration again when he visited the battlefield and cemetery at Gettysburg to give new meaning to three years of blood shed between brothers. Lincoln is most often associated with two of Jefferson's self-evident truths, one, that all men are created equal, and two, that they are endowed with an unalienable right to liberty. After all, these are the clauses that Lincoln himself most referenced. Lincoln's House Divided and Cooper, Cooper's Union speeches, the Lincoln-Douglas debates over Kansas-Nebraska, and the moral view of slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation, and again, the Gettysburg Address, all of these further connect Lincoln in the American imagination with equality and liberty. But there's yet another element in Jefferson's declaration that permeates Lincoln's life and career but receives considerably less attention, the pursuit of happiness. 
Lincoln struggled in his personal life to find happiness. And he struggled in his political life to create the conditions for public happiness. His most enduring legacy, of course, is that in the fiery trial of the Civil War, he brought forth what some historians have called a second American Revolution, overthrowing the slave power and giving a whole race of people their fair claim to Jefferson's declaration and the liberty, if not yet the equality or the wherewithal, to pursue their happiness. These three pursuits, personal happiness, public happiness, and future happiness for the slave, are what I would like to talk to you about today. Lincoln was born into a tough world 200 years ago. Growing up in the woods of Kentucky, Illinois, and Indiana and Illinois, Lincoln's family lived the independent frontier life that Jefferson had envisioned as the lifeblood of the young nation, as the ever-abundant fountain of youth. Yet for Lincoln, the West took life as quickly as it gave it. His only brother died in infancy in Kentucky. In 1818, an infectious disease spread near Abraham's home in southern Indiana. First, it infected and killed his uncle and aunt, Thomas and Elizabeth Sparrow. Then in October, it took from him his mother, 34-year-old Nancy Lincoln. And if you were here for Gleaves' talk, you really described well what that experience would be like in a small one-room cabin where Lincoln and his whole family would have had to watch his mother die. Less than two years later, or I'm sorry, when Abraham was 17, his sister moved out of her father, his father's home, a devastating development for Lincoln, who was very much attached to his older sister. Less than two years later, she died in childbirth. And the child, Abraham's nephew, was stillborn. A neighbor later recalled Lincoln's reaction to news of his sister. He sat down in the door of the smokehouse and buried his face in his hands, the neighbor remembered. The tears slowly trickled from between his bony fingers and his gaunt frame shook with sobs. If deaths of the three most important women in his childhood caused, or three of the most important women in his childhood caused Lincoln considerable grief, he gained little comfort from his father and the other men in his life. Thomas Lincoln, who was barely literate, never understood his son's literary bent. Lincoln would often wander away from his chores to read a book under a shade tree. He would get up early in the morning, read, steal away throughout the day to read, and read well into the evening by the fireside. To his father, stepbrother, and cousins who expected to live and die laboring on a farm, this seemed beyond indulgent. It was wasteful, lazy, contemptible. His father, not generally harsh or abusive, would often beat his son for this behavior. Lincoln was lazy, a very lazy man, his cousin concluded. Navy neighbors agreed. He was awful lazy. He was no hand to pitch in and killing snakes. Lincoln, for his part, rejected their way of life and their worldview. Such a distance came between Abraham and his father that years later, despite pleas from his father's bedside where he lay dying, Lincoln elected not to return home. He stayed away, too, during his father's funeral. If Lincoln's childhood and adolescence were trying, his terrible love life brought little relief. First, there was Anne Rutledge. As Gleaves Gleave mentioned, it's debated among historians today, as it was among his contemporaries, whether or not Abraham and Anne were engaged to marry after Lincoln left his father's home and established himself independently. <clears throat> but many believe that Anne, <clears throat> excuse me, not a good place to set this water up here. 
but many believe that Anne was the love of Abraham's life. Rutledge was a very pretty girl, according to historian David Herbert Donald, with fair skin, blue eyes, and auburn hair. A neighbor remembered that she was as pure in heart and kind of heart as an angel, full of love, kindness, sympathy. Herndon later claimed that Anne was the only woman that Lincoln ever loved. In the fall of 1835, however, Abraham was once again devastated by death. He lost Anne to typhoid. It was at this time, as we shall see in a moment, that Lincoln uh, experienced his first of two very prolonged and public emotional collapses. Next there was Mary Owens, with whom Lincoln had a love affair when he was 27. Abraham and Mary had an informal understanding that they would eventually wed. However, Mary went away for some months to return to her parents' home, and while she was gone, Lincoln began having second thoughts. Biographer David Herbert Donald recounts Lincoln's response to Mary's eagerness to wed this way. This is not, I'll tell you in advance, one of Lincoln's prouder moments, um, but it is, it's pretty hilarious to read about. It's not, it's not the image any of us have of Lincoln today. He feared that her coming so readily showed that she was a trifle too willing. He began finding defects in her appearance. From her first visit to New Salem, he remembered that she was pleasingly stout, weighing between 150 and 180 pounds, according to contemporaries. But now she appeared, in Lincoln's words, a fair match for Falstaff. Lincoln actually, he did himself less justice than, than Donald. Lincoln described it this way. This is how he explained the transformation. Now when I beheld her, I could for, not for my life avoid thinking of my mother. And this not from her withered features, for her skin was too full of fat to permit it, contra permit it contracting into wrinkles, but from her want of teeth, weather-beaten appearance in general, and from a kind notion that ran in my head that nothing could have commenced at the size of infancy and reached her present bulk in less than 35 or 40 years. So, wasn't, wasn't always kind to, to the ladies. The two were separated by geography again for some months when Lincoln moved to, to New Salem, or from New Salem to Springfield. Lincoln took advantage of the opportunity to engage in a six-month campaign to convince Mary in writing that she should break off the engagement. Out of a sense of honor, apparently, he couldn't do it himself. He had to try to convince Mary to do it. He told Mary that she would be unhappy, uncomfortable, and poor if she came to Springfield to marry him. She would not fit in. Their match would cause her much physical and emotional distress. You have not been accustomed to hardship, he told her, and it may come, I'm sorry, and it may be more severe than you now imagine. He ended his final letter to Mary, saying, I'm willing and even anxious to bind you faster if I can be convinced that it will in any considerable degree add to your happiness. Pretty appealing offer after everything else he's already said. Mary rejected Abraham's offer, unsurprisingly, and Lincoln was devastated. The rejection led him to believe that he actually might have loved the woman to begin with. This is what's going on in Lincoln's mind. Next, there was Mary Todd. You'll notice in a moment that this starts to sound a bit like a soap opera when I'm recounting Lincoln's love affairs. But next, there was Mary Todd, the cousin of Lincoln's neighbor, Elizabeth Edwards. Lincoln spent much of his time at the Edwards home seeing Mary, and the two eventually and, and entered an engagement. Ever indecisive in love, Lincoln came to believe that he and Mary Todd were a poor match, and soon became, he became infatuated with a number, another member of the household, 18-year-old Matilda Edwards. 
Lincoln broke off the engagement with Mary Todd, was rejected by Matilda, and had a second prolonged emotional collapse that we'll explore in just a few moments. While he was separated from Mary Todd, he proposed to yet another woman. Um, apparently, this was, he was just very eager to propose to people. I don't know if, if you guys had this experience in your coming of age, just propose to this person, next person. We'll see how it goes. 16-year-old Sarah Ricard rejected his offer in her words because the peculiar manner of his general deportment would not be likely to fascinate a young girl just entering the society world. So he's rejected yet again. As we know, Lincoln eventually returned to Mary Todd, but the two did not live happily ever after. If death and tempestuous love affairs were roadblocks in Lincoln's pursuit of happiness before marriage, they would continue to be afterward. As two of their four children died, and Mary famously exercised her demons. And of course, as Gleaves pointed out, a third child would die. Mary would experience the death of another child after losing her husband. But there is more to the story of Lincoln's unhappiness than a series of unfortunate events. There's a now famous story about Leo Tolstoy discussing Lincoln with a Muslim chieftain up in the Caucasus Mountains between Asia and Europe. Greg has heard this one. No, okay, I guess not. I guess it's a little obscure. According to Tolstoy, Lincoln's fame and reputation had spread all the way to that isolated corner of the world. The chief reputedly saying of Lincoln, he spoke with a voice of thunder, he laughed with the sunrise, and his deeds were as strong as the rock. The chief's mood changed, however, when he had the opportunity to see a picture of Lincoln's face that Tolstoy presented to him. He gazed at it for several, several moments silently, Tolstoy later recalled, like one in reverent prayer, his eyes filled with tears. He was deeply touched, and I asked him why he became so sad. After pondering my question for a moment, he replied, don't you find, judging from his picture, that his eyes are full of tears and his lips are sad with secret sorrow. That sorrow that the chief saw in Lincoln's face, that melancholy, as his friends and colleagues referred to it, can be partially explained by the tragedies and the struggles that we just recalled. But there is something deeper, some quality inside of Lincoln that challenged him throughout his entire life. Biographer jo Joshua Wolf Schenck recently explored the evidence and concluded that the deep pervasive sadness of Lincoln's mother, the strange spells of his father, his father would wander off in the woods muttering to himself for long periods of time, and the striking presence of mental illness in the family of his uncle and aunts suggests a likelihood of a biological predisposition toward depression in Lincoln. Lincoln's two emotional collapses one in the fall of 1835 after the death of Anne, and one in January 1841 after his separation from Mary Todd, give us a glimpse into this profound depression that Lincoln had. They will give us a better sense of why his law partner William Herndon would later write, his melancholy dripped from him as he walked. And other colleagues would say it was the one thing in Lincoln that defined him, the one most noticeable quality was his profound melancholy. In both instances, friends feared that Lincoln had lost his mind forever and that he might commit suicide. As Gleaves mentioned, several later recalled hiding his razor blades and his knives for this reason. And in fact, a poem glorifying suicide appeared in a local paper and is widely attributed to Lincoln today. In both instances, Lincoln required considerable help from friends and even from medical doctors 
before he could eventually recover. According to historian Michael Burlingame, Lincoln likely underwent many of the customary procedures of that time, including a painful regimen of bleeding, leeching, the application of heated cups to his temples, mustard rubs, foul-tasting medicines, and cold water, water baths. Apparently this was pretty terrible. They'd have you sit in a hot tub and then jump into a cold tub and back into a hot tub. It sounds like not the most fun experience in the world. He made a public spectacle of himself, breaking down, crying, and talking of suicide. For not giving you a general summary of the news, you must pardon me, Lincoln wrote to a law partner in the, in the midst of his second collapse. It is not in my power to do so. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel today were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or do better. Lincoln wrote this letter a month before his 32nd birthday. 20 years before he took the oath of office as president. How then do we explain Lincoln's rise? How do we explain his ability through death, horrible love affairs, and profound depression to even approximate happiness in his private life? Among the answers are three qualities we often remember Lincoln for today. His love of education, his sense of humor, and his abounding ambition. First, education. Although, as Gleaves mentioned, he received but 12 months of formal education in his life, Lincoln was an avid reader from an, early, from an early age. According to his family members, he was a constant, stubborn reader who would read all the books he could lay his hands on. Quote, he read diligently, studied in the daytime, went to bed early, got up early, and read. He read the Bible, Aesop's fables, Shakespeare, Bunyan, Burns, Defoe, Byron, Poe, and books about spelling, grammar, mathematics, and history. According to his stepmother, when he came across a passage that struck him, he would write it down on boards if he had no paper, and keep it until he did get paper. Then he would rewrite it, look at it, repeat it, internalize it. He ciphered on boards when he had no paper and no slate, and when the board would get too black, he would shave it off with a drawing knife and go on again. It's a very laborious study. It's not what we have today. He continued with great discipline into his adult life. After he moved to New Salem, Illinois, he was known as a bookworm, and he read for pleasure and for self-improvement. After studying hard for two or three hours in the evening, writes Burlingame, Lincoln would relax with the volume of his own poems. The result was that Lincoln became a man of extraordinary literary skill. No less than Ralph Waldo Emerson would later say, the weight and penetration of the many passages of Lincoln's letters, messages, and speeches are destined for wide fame. What pregnant definitions, what unerring common sense, what foresight, and on great occasions, what lofty, and more than national, what human tone. Transcendent praise from the nation's great transcendentalist. Lincoln's studies, according to Burlingame, helped, quote, liberate him from his backwoods environment. Self-education is often then where Lincoln found his happiness. While Emerson wrote about Lincoln's lofty words at great moments, they weren't always so lofty. Historian Paul Bowler has written about the September 21, 1862 meeting at which Lincoln surprised his cabinet with his preliminary emancipation proclamation. None of them saw it coming. 
And this was a great moment indeed. The president was reading a book and hardly noticed me when I came in, Secretary of War Stanton later recalled. Finally, he turned to us and said, Gentlemen, did you ever read anything by Artemis Ward? Let me read a chapter. It is very funny. Lincoln then read aloud something by humorist Ward entitled The High-Handed Outrage at Utica. Furious at what he regarded as buffoonery on Lincoln's part, Stanton almost got up and left, but Lincoln read until the end of the piece, and then he laughed heartily. Everyone else was silent. (laughs) Gentlemen, said Lincoln disappointedly, why don't you laugh? With a fearful strain that is upon me night and day, if I do not laugh, I should die. And you need this medicine as much as I do, he said. Then he reached into his tall hat on the table, took out a piece of paper, and said, I have a very important piece of business to discuss with you today. Lincoln proceeded to read the preliminary emancipation proclamation. Proceeded it with, apparently, this buffoonery, as Stan described it. Laughter like yearning, or like learning, was a medicine that helped Lincoln overcome his depression. From childhood until the end of his life, Lincoln collected jokes and anecdotes that could raise spirits, entertain on the Illinois circuit, and illustrate the points he wanted to make. His well of stories never ran dry, writes Joshua Schenck, because he was always refilling it. He gathered materials from other people and from books. Schenck calls humor... I'll set this aside, excuse me. Shank calls humor protection from Lincoln's mental storms. Lincoln himself called jokes the vents of my mood and gloom, and humor an emollient that saves me much friction and distress. I laugh, president told, the president told friends in the depths of the Civil War, because I must not cry. He found humor in everything. Once staring out a window in his office in Springfield, Lincoln observed a woman with what was described as a many-plumed hat walking across a muddy street out the window. She slipped and fell. She reminds me of a duck, Lincoln told the gentleman standing next to him. Why is that? Feathers on her head and down on her behind, replied Lincoln. (laughs) Another time in court, a lawyer embarrassedly argued a case with a large split in the rear of his pants. He's up there facing the judge and everybody's getting a sense of his, under, his underwear and all that. It was a good, good time for him. One of Lincoln's amused colleagues passed around a subscription paper for other lawyers to pledge donations to buy their colleague a new pair of pants. Beside his name on the sheet, Lincoln wrote, I can contribute nothing to the end in view. He loved the, the play on words. Hidden behind Lincoln's jokes and stories, though, was enormous ambition. In his deepest depression in 1841, Lincoln declared to his friend Joshua Speed that he would be more than willing to die. But I have an irrepressible desire to live till I can be assured that the world is a little better for my having lived in it. He wanted to connect himself with the great events transpiring in his generation, according to Speed, and to so impress himself upon them as to link his name with something that would redound to the interests of his fellow man. At first, Lincoln's ambition lacked focus. In the course of 10 years, writes biographer Donald, Lincoln tried nearly every kind of work on the frontier. Carpenter, riverboat man, store clerk, soldier, merchant, postmaster, blacksmith, surveyor, lawyer, politician. His greatest ambitions were as a lawyer and politician, and he applied himself to perfecting both as intensely as he applied himself to his boyhood studies. 
We can all relate to Lincoln's best efforts to evade the troubling aspects of his life by channeling his energy into his passion, education, his hobby, storytelling, and his career. But in Lincoln's case, his love of learning, his search for humor, and his overweening ambition probably saved him from his otherwise insurmountable depression. And as the remainder of our discussion here will make plain, we are all better off for it. In the midst of the Civil War, an old woman visited Lincoln at the executive mansion to beg that her husband be released from the army so that he could come help support the family. When Lincoln granted her request, she left with tears of joy in her eyes. It is more than many can often say, Lincoln wrote in a letter to Joshua Speed, that in doing right, one can make two people happy in one day. Speed, die when I may, I want it said of me by those who know me best that I always plucked a thistle and planted a flower when I thought a flower would grow. Plucked a thistle and planted a flower. When Lincoln entered the world of politics, he did so with numerous ideas about how government could intervene to ease the burden on individual Americans and to reduce obstacles in their pursuit of happiness, to plant thistles wherever possible. His political philosophy owed much to his forebears. Forty years before Lincoln received his political education, Two visions for promoting public happiness in the United States were born in competition. They can be traced the debates in George Washington's cabinet between Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson and Secretary of the, of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. They crystallized in the first party system and they survived into the new century. Two visions, Jefferson's America and Hamilton's America, persisted into Lincoln's day in debates over presidential power, territorial expansion, internal improvements, banks, tariffs, and states' rights. As we shall see, Lincoln was born into one, but in many ways, in many respects, he adopted the other. His vision would ultimately be an amalgamation of the two. Let's take a closer look. Thomas Jefferson, on the one hand, wanted to author a new Declaration of Independence for individual Americans. He wanted to free people from the whims of government, from the contrivances of profiteers, from creditors. This is an important point for a man who inherited and accumulated significant debt in his lifetime, almost insurmountable debt. And from all forms of dependence, foreign and domestic. Dependence, wrote Jefferson, begets subservience and venality, suffocates the germ of virtue, and perpetuates fit tools in the designs of ambition. Jefferson's vision required vacant lands. It's not, I'm sorry, vacant lands to liberate the coming generations of Americans from corrupt cities as he saw them. It is not surprising then that Jefferson contemplated as governor of Virginia the forcible acquisition of Detroit and Lake Erie from the, from the British in order to add that extensive and fertile country, country, in his words, to the empire of liberty. Or that as president, he took an interest in territory west of the Mississippi River, commissioned the Lewis and Clark expedition to explore lands all the way the, to the Pacific, and purchased the Louisiana Territory from France after threatening to fight a war for it. Jefferson's vision also required a program for education, for educating what he called the common people, in order to secure and preserve for them a due degree of liberty. Jefferson, of course, promoted colleges for, quote, teaching the languages, geography, surveying, and other useful things, as well as universities for the sciences. And of course, as we all know, 
he retired to found and be the first president of the University of Virginia. On the other hand, Jefferson wanted to constrain Americans in certain ways. He had an ideal in mind, an ideal that he believed would preserve the virtues of the people and lead to the nation's greatest possible happiness. Those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people, wrote Jefferson in his notes of the state, on the state of Virginia. In their breasts, quote, he has made his peculiar deposit for substantial and genuine virtue. It is the focus in which he keeps alive that sacred fire which otherwise might escape from the face of the earth. Corruption of morals and the mass of cultivators, said Jefferson, is a phenomenon of which no age nor nation has furnished an example. While there is land to labor, wrote Jefferson, let us never wish to see our citizens occupied at a workbench or twirling a distaff. Carpenters, masons, smiths are wanting in husbandry, but for the general operation of manufacture, let our workshops remain in Europe. The loss by transportation of commodities across the Atlantic, the loss of exports in other words, will be made up in happiness and per permanence of government. Jefferson disdained banks, which banished precious metals and substituted a more fluctuating and unsafe medium, in his words. According to Jefferson, banking institutions had, quote, withdrawn capital from useful improvements and employments to nourish idleness. He disdained commerce and manufacturing, writing that for the emolument of a small proportion of our society who prefer, prefer these demoralizing pursuits to labors useful to the whole, the peace of the whole is endangered, and all our present difficulties produced. Jefferson's America, then, was a nation of independent citizens, spread widely on abundant lands, engaged in useful, primarily agricultural works, and free of the demoralizing pursuits of banking, manufacturing, and commerce. This vision was anathema to Hamilton, who, unlike Jefferson, was born without the benefits of land and wealth. Hamilton, poor and orphaned, first demonstrated his boyhood talents as a clerk for an import-export firm in the British West Indies. His worldview, in other words, developed in the midst of a thriving commercial and trade center. If Jefferson was conservative in his economics, rejecting the rising industrial and financial world in favor of a more traditional agricultural economy, then Hamilton was undoubtedly the leading economic progressive of the founding generation. In the words of biographer Ron Chernow, Hamilton was the clear-eyed apostle of America's economic future, setting forth a vision that, was, that many found enthralling, others unsettling, but that would ultimately prevail. Hamilton looked to the urban elite, the merchants, bankers, the business leaders, not the yeoman farmers, to lead the new nation's economy. He supported government activism in economic affairs, and as Treasury Secretary, he set about creating the conditions for a flourishing market economy with banks, credit, uniform currency, liquid capital, enforceable contracts, respect for private property, patents, import duties, all these sorts of things. Hamilton also supported a system of internal improvements. In his famous 1791 report on manufactures, Hamilton credited the improvement of the roads and the opening of canals for success of British manufacturers. Uncharacteristically, even Jefferson, perhaps swayed by his Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, proposed in his 1806 message to Congress to use federal surpluses to fund, quote, public education 
roads, rivers, canals, and such other objects of public improvement as it may be thought proper to add to the constitutional enumeration of federal powers. By these operations, wrote Jefferson, new channels of communications will be opened between the states, the lines of separation will disappear, their interests will be identified, and their union cemented by new and indissoluble ties. Doesn't sound like the Jefferson I know, but stated words. The difference, of course, is Hamilton's focus on the economic benefits of internal improvements for manufacturing, and Jefferson's focus on the social benefits for the people. Hamilton's America was a vibrant, forward-looking nation, with bustling urban centers engaged in global trade, and featuring the demoralizing pursuits of banking, manufacturing, and commerce. 200 years ago this week, Abraham Lincoln was born into Jefferson's America. His father was an independent farmer who moved his family from Kentucky to Indiana to Illinois in pursuit of more fruitful lands. In fact, one can literally say Lincoln lived in Jefferson's America when his father moved the family into the Old Northwest Territory to benefit from the township system, standardized surveying processes, and saleable lots, all designed by Jefferson in the 1780s. Even a Lincoln's eventual home state, Illinois, approximates the, Jefferson, the name Jefferson initially suggested for it, Illinois. Illinois got lucky. I don't know if you guys have ever seen one of these maps with, with all the names that Jefferson proposed for the, the old Northwest Territory. They sound like Mesopotamia. Gleaves might know, know a few of them. They're, they're terrible. I think we got lucky, too. We, we didn't end up with Jefferson's name. Even Link, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, however, Lincoln found his father's way of life distasteful. He disliked farm work and much of the physical labor the frontier had to offer. When he was president, Lincoln recalled a turning point in his adolescence. He was hired by two men on the Ohio River to take them out on his small boat to a larger boat, and he expected just a few bits payment in return. But when they arrived at the destination, the men turned around to him and tossed him two silver half dollars. I could scarcely believe my eyes, Lincoln later told friends. Gentlemen, you may think it was a very little thing, but it was a most important incident in my life. I could scarcely credit that I, a poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day. The world seemed wider and fairer before me. At the age of 17, Lincoln had gotten his first glimpses of Hamilton's America when he began selling firewood to steamers on the Ohio River, working as a riverboat man, and even driving flatboats to New Orleans for, local, for a local store owner, stocked with meat, corn, and flour for sale. After he left his father's home, Lincoln became a store clerk and then a store owner for a short while in New Salem, Illinois. Ultimately, Lincoln did not make a career in, in commerce, but these early experiences shaped his thinking about the economy. I am not ashamed to confess, Lincoln said in a speech in March 1860, that 20 years ago I was a hired laborer, mauling rails at work on a flatboat, just what might happen to any poor man's son, said Lincoln. I want every man to have a chance in which he can better his condition, when he may look forward and hope to be hired, a hired laborer this year and next, work for himself afterward, and finally to hire men that work for him. That, said Lincoln, is a true system. Lincoln wanted to free Americans to exercise their right to rise through a medium of a vibrant and growing economy. That, of course, was Hamilton's America. 
On the side of the Union, Lincoln said, in the depths of the Civil War, is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the conditions of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear paths to, to laudable pursuits for all, to afford all an unfettered start, a fair chance in the race of life. Lincoln, like Hamilton, envisioned an activist government in economic affairs focused on creating the conditions in which Americans could advance themselves and prosper. He wanted citizens to be able to choose, as he had, their own path in the pursuit of happiness, rather than being locked by a stagnant economy into the paths of their fathers and grandfathers. Born into Jefferson's America and shaped by Hamilton's, Lincoln's prescription for public ha happiness included elements of both. On Hamilton's side of the ledger, Lincoln supported internal improvements to promote economic development. Banks, including a national bank with government deposits, and tariff protection for manufacturing firms, among other economic measures. On Jefferson's side, Lincoln supported the creation of educational institutions to foster independence and to teach the practical and liberal arts to farmers and laborers. For my part, Lincoln wrote in 1832, I desire to see the time when education and by its means morality, sobriety, enterprise, and industry shall become much more general than at present. Lincoln also supported Western land grants for aspiring farmers. I have to say that in so far as the government lands can be disposed of, Lincoln said, I'm in favor of cutting up the wild lands into parcels so that every poor man can have a home. It was during Lincoln's first term as president, with Congress firmly under the control of his fellow Republicans, that these measures finally came to fruition. Lincoln signed, in historian James McPherson's words, an astonishing blitz of laws that worked to fundamentally, fundamentally reshape the relation of government to the economy. On the one hand, these laws created the conditions under which Hamilton's America could flourish in the coming decades. Higher tariffs nurtured manufacturing. A national bank reintroduced monetary policy and provided a uniform currency. The first transcontinental railroad spurred economic development in the West. And a new array of federal taxes, including the nation's first income tax, created by a Republican. We talked about this earlier, how parties have changed over years. The first income tax kept the government on firm footing. On the other hand, they created the conditions under which Jefferson's America would flourish. The Homestead Act produced tens of thousands of prosperous and dependent family farms by distributing 160-acre plots of federal land in the West. And the Morrill Act established agricultural and mechanical colleges in all the states, more than 70 in total, to, quote, promote the liberal and practical education of the industrial classes and the several pursuits of professional life. Lincoln's America, with its support for agricultural, financial, industrial, commercial, and educational pursuits, would provide greater opportunity and wherewithal for succeeding generations of Americans to pursue their own happiness. So to review, Lincoln struggled in his personal life through death, love affairs, and profound depression to pursue happiness and learning, humor, and ambition. He struggled in his political life to create economic conditions that would produce public happiness by making possible for a larger number of Americans a staggering rise like his, up a path of his own choosing from the log cabin to the White House. 
I would like to conclude then by, by briefly looking at Lincoln's greatest struggle, his hero's journey, if you were here to hear my talk yesterday, which would prove to be his most enduring legacy. That struggle was to stake just claim for a whole race of people to the precepts of the Declaration of Independence, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Abraham Lincoln was out of politics by the age of 40. In 1849, damaged by his exuberant opposition to President Polk's popular Mexican War, the four-term Illinois state legislator and one-term U.S. representative retired to his law practice in Springfield. But within five years, Lincoln had heard his call to action. Since the Missouri Compromise of 1820, Slavery had been outlawed north of the Mason-Dixon line in the old Louisiana Territory, leading many, including Lincoln, to believe that bounded as it was, the nation's peculiar institution would gradually and thankfully fade away. Henry Clay struck a compromise in 1850, and Lincoln supported it, that attempted to end the controversy over newly acquired territory from the Mexican War by bringing California in as a free state, while allowing popular sovereignty, or the will of the people, to decide whether the New Mexico or Utah territories would be free or slave. Lincoln now believed the debate over extending slavery was, in his words, settled forever. There was a good chance that free states would be carved out of New Mexico, since its climate was not ideal for cultivating tobacco or cotton, and Utah, surrounded by free states, would likely follow suit. Now, in 1854, Stephen Douglas's Kansas-Nebraska Act repealed the Missouri Compromise altogether and opened up all the Louisiana Territory, including modern-day Kansas and Nebraska, much of Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, and parts of North and South Dakota, to be brought into the Union, quote, with or without slavery, depending upon popular sovereignty. The people, according to the Act, were, quote, perfectly free to form and regulate their domestic institutions in their own way. The moral issue of slavery, in Lincoln's mind, had become a democratic question for newly emerging states north and south of the Mason-Dixon line. Not only that, but Kansas-Nebraska, which could theoretically bolster American slavery by breathing new life into the domestic slave trade and by adding new states to the slave power, seemed to Lincoln a dangerous step on a path toward the legalization of slavery in any and all states. Douglas's challenge had to be met. This would be the great cause of Lincoln's generation that he would impress himself upon. If he succeeded in the fight, this would be the achievement that would redound to the interests of his fellow man, that would realize his highest ambition. It was a challenge Lincoln was compelled to meet because, as he would later say, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. And he began by reentering politics. In 1858, Lincoln challenged Stephen Douglas for his Senate seat, making opposition to Kansas-Nebraska the core of his campaign. I hate it, Lincoln said of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives a Republican example of its just influence in the world, causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity, and especially because it forces many really good men among us into an open-air war against the very fundamental principle of civil liberty, criticizing the Declaration of Independence and insisting that there is no right principle of action except self-interest. Stepping into the battle against the spread of slavery, Lincoln wielded the Declaration itself against his opponents. 
There is no reason in the world, Lincoln said in one of his famous debates with Douglas, why the Negro is not entitled to all the rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hold that he is as much entitled as, as the white man, and the right to eat the bread without leave of anybody else, which he earns. He is my, he is my equal, he is the equal of Judge Douglas, he said, and he is the equal of every other man. Now he's criticized pretty frequently today by his own apologists, by, his, by people who still very much uh, have an appreciation for Lincoln for distinguishing between human rights or natural rights and civil rights. Because in the same quotation, he says that he agrees with Douglas essentially that, you know, the black man should not be my political equal. Yet he is unwilling to give on his right to natural rights to what Jefferson outlined in the Declaration of Independence. They meant to set up a standard maxim for free society, Lincoln said about the authors of the Declaration at another of the debates, which should be familiar to all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deeping its, influencing, its influence, and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people, of all colors, everywhere. Liberty, equality, and happiness, then, not slavery, are what the founders intended to spread in Lincoln's mind. Lincoln went back to the founding principles to show the base alloy of hypocrisy, as he called it, in a nation founded for liberty and engaged in slavery. Judge Douglas is going back to the era of our revolution, Lincoln said, borrowing words from his political hero, and muzzling the cannon which thunders its annual joyous return. When he invites any people willing to have slavery to establish it, he is blowing out the moral lights around us. When he says he cares not whether slavery is voted up or voted down, he is penetrating the human soul and eradicating the light of reason and the love of liberty in this American people. Very dramatic words. Very passionate person. Lincoln lost the election, but in the eyes of many of his contemporaries and nearly all historians, he won the debate, and the press coverage of the campaign raised Lincoln's profile nationally, making possible his election as president two years later. On January 1, 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the first unquestionably constitutional step toward the 13th Amendment, which would permanently abolish slavery in the United States in 1865. Using his power as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, Lincoln took the one decisive action that Chief Justice Roger Taney's Supreme Court could not touch. As a war measure, he declared slaves in the rebellious states thenceforth and forever, thenceforward and forever free. Months after issuing the proclamation, Lincoln delivered his address at Gettysburg. Four score and seven years ago, Lincoln said, once again evoking Je Je Jefferson's declaration, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. In the wake of immense and violent national divisions, especially over the questions of liberty and equality, Lincoln's address was revolutionary. By accepting the Gettysburg Address, its concept of a single people dedicated to a proposition, historian Gary Wills writes, we have been changed. Because of it, we live in a different America. We live in Lincoln's America, and following his example, we forge our own path. Thank you.
happy to field any questions. I don't know how much time we have. I probably took up too much time. We have 10 minutes. Left you speechless. <laughs> I have a question. Sure. Has anybody done any work systematically on this question of the pursuit of happiness personally, politically, and then for a whole group of people? I don't think so. As I said at the beginning of the, the talk, I think all the attention typically goes to equality and liberty. But no, I mean, there, there's a lot of writing about his struggle to find happiness. And in fact, your speech this morning showcased it. Um, and there's a considerable degree of work, obviously, on emancipation. But no, I, don't, I haven't seen anything that connects the three in, in terms of the pursuit of happiness and how this was a goal, an ideal in his life. You know, that, that's what got me on this path. Is it, it was very interesting to me to see that in his greatest depths, in his depression, his ultimate ambition was to make other people happier or, or, or make some impact on the world that would maybe make the journey a little easier for others. Um, it's probably idealized, and, and if you're here for Scott Stabler's talk this morning, he has a very much different take on Lincoln. And they're probably both right in their own way. Um, everyone has complex motives, and you know, maybe this pursuit of happiness was part of, or part of Lincoln's, I almost said Gleaves's. Is that a Freudian slip? We've got Lincoln in the room here. But maybe that was part of his motive, and there were some other more economic motives as well that, that uh, Scott hit on today. And do you buy the thesis that it was because of Lincoln's failure to find happiness in his personal life, through his marriage and the tragedy of losing two kids, you know, while he was alive, that probably drove him to think of sublimating it. And I mean, if he had been a happy, sort of uh, accommodated dude, he wouldn't have become the great man he was. Yeah. No, I think there's definitely something to that. I think the most depressed among us dive into our careers, right? I mean, that's sort of a way to divert our attention from what's horrible about our lives. And uh, we've had H.W. Brands, in fact, speak on this before. I don't know if you guys are familiar with H.W. Brands. Writes a lot of presidential biography, great historian down from the University of Texas. But he wrote on Theodore Roosevelt about this exact idea, basically saying that, like Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt was a deeply depressed man. Uh, it ran in his family. I mean, you could see it in his father. You could see it in his, his sons later. Um, and the way that T.R. evaded his own uh, depression, I think H.W. Bryant had a much more impressive way of saying it. I think he said he was running away from the blackness in his path or something like that. But the way he evaded his depression was by being always at work, constantly working. This is a man who, in the Oval Office, was reading and writing books between appointments. He was staying up to all hours of the night. He just kept himself busy so that he would never have to think about the things maybe that, that depressed him. And I think you can see the same thing in Lincoln. Brands' take, actually, is that in the age of Prozac, we're, we're, we're missing out on a lot of potential leaders who maybe could have been just as busy as Lincoln and his TR. They could have just done great things, but instead they medicate that depression rather than apparently in a less healthy way, running away from it and, and busying themselves. But it's an interesting question. Medicate, not sublimate. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, if there's nothing else, thank you very much.